atmosphere of true excitement. Within half an hour, almost all the women were drunk. A yardstick Lang had long used to measure the success of a party. When he complimented Talbot, the psychiatrist was non-committal. There's a quickening pulse in the air, all right, but has it anything to do with good humor or fellow feeling? Rather the opposite, I'd guess. You're not concerned? For some reason, less than I should be. That's true as all. These agreeably expressed remarks cautioned Lang. Listening to the animated conversations around him, he was struck by the full extent of the antagonism being expressed. The hostility directed at people who lived in other sections of the high-rise. The malicious humor, the eagerness to believe any piece of gossip and any tall story about the shiftlessness of the lower floor tenants or the arrogance of the upper floor had all the intensity of racial prejudice. But as Talbot had pointed out, Lang found himself unworried by all this. He even took a certain crude pleasure in joining in the gossip and in watching the usually circumspect Charlotte Melville put down several more than two drinks too many. At least it was a means by which they could reach each other. However, as the party broke up, a small but unpleasant episode took place outside the elevator doors in the 27th floor lobby. Although it was after 10 o'clock, the entire building was alive with noise. Residents were barging in and out of each other's apartments, shouting down the staircases like children refusing to go to bed. Confused by the endless button punching, the elevators had come to a halt, and gangs of impatient passengers packed the lobbies. Although their next destination, a party given by a lexicographer on the 26th floor, was only one story below them, everyone leaving Talbot's party was determined not to use the stairs. Even Charlotte, face flushed and tottering happily on Lang's arm, joined in the wild surge across the elevator lobby and drummed on the doors with her strong fists. When at last an elevator arrived, the doors opened to reveal a solitary passenger, a thin-shouldered and neurasthenic young masseuse who lived with her mother on the fifth floor. Lang immediately recognized her as one of the vagrants, of whom there were many in the high-rise bored apartment-bound housewives and stay-at-home adult daughters who spent a large part of their time riding the elevators and wandering the long corridors of the vast building, migrating endlessly in search of change or excitement. Alarmed by the drunken crowd reeling towards her, the young woman snapped out of her reverie and pressed a button at random. A derisory hoot went up from the swaying guests. Within seconds, she was pulled from the elevator and put through a mock playful grilling. A statistician's overexcited wife shouted at the hapless girl in a shrill voice, pushed a strong arm through the front rank of interrogators and slapped her face. Pulling himself away from Charlotte, Lang stepped forward. The crowd's mood was unpleasant, but difficult to take seriously. His neighbors were like a group of unrehearsed extras playing a lynch scene. Come on. I'll see you to the stairs. Holding the young woman by her thin shoulders, he tried to steer her towards the door, but there was a chorus of skeptical shouts. The women among the guests pushed aside their husbands and began to punch the girl on the arms and chest. Giving up, Lang stood to one side. He watched as the shocked young woman stumbled into the mouth of this eager gauntlet and was pummeled through a circuit of fists before she was allowed to disappear into the stairwell. His reflex of chivalry and good sense had been no match for this posse of middle-aged avenging angels. Uneasily, he thought, careful, Lang, or some stockbroker's wife will unman you as expertly as she de-stones a pair of avocados. The night passed noisily, with constant movement through the corridors, the sounds of shouts and breaking glass in the elevator shafts, the blare of music failing across the dark air. Chapter 3 Death of a Resident A cloudless sky, as dull as the air over a cold vat, lay across the concrete walls and embankments of the development project. At dawn, after a confused night, Lang went out onto his balcony and looked down at the silent parking lots below. Half a mile to the south, 
The river continued on its usual course from the city, but Lang searched the surrounding landscape, expecting it to have changed in some radical way. Wrapped in his bathrobe, he massaged his bruised shoulders. Although he had failed to realize it at the time, there had been a remarkable amount of physical violence during the parties. He touched the tender skin, prodding the musculature as if searching for another self. The physiologist who had taken a quiet studio in this expensive apartment building six months earlier. Everything had started to get out of hand. Disturbed by the continuous noise, he had slept for little more than an hour. Although the high-rise was silent, the last of the hundred or so separate parties held in the building had ended only five minutes beforehand. Far below him, the cars in the front ranks of the parking lot were spattered with broken eggs, wine, and melted ice cream. A dozen windscreens had been knocked out by falling bottles. Even at this early hour, at least 20 of Lang's fellow residents were standing on their balconies, gazing down at the debris gathering at the cliff. Unsettled, Lang prepared breakfast, absent-mindedly pouring away most of the coffee he had percolated before he tasted it. With an effort, he reminded himself that he was due to demonstrate in the physiology department that morning. Already his attention was fixed on the events taking place within the high-rise, as if this huge building existed solely in his mind and would vanish if he stopped thinking about it. Staring at himself in the kitchen mirror, at his wine-stained hands and unshaven face with its surprisingly good color, he tried to switch himself on. For once, Lang, he told himself, fight your way out of your own head. The disturbing image of the posse of middle-aged women beating up the young masseuse anchored everything around him to a different plane of reality. His own reaction, the prompt sidestep out of their way, summed up more than he realized about the progress of events. At eight o'clock, Lang set off for the medical school. The elevator was filled with broken glass and beer cans. Part of the control panel had been damaged in an obvious attempt to prevent the lower floors signaling the car. As he walked across the parking lot, Lang looked back at the high-rise, aware that he was leaving part of his mind behind him. When he reached the medical school, he walked through the empty corridors of the building with an effort, re-establishing the identity of the offices and lecture theatres. He let himself into the dissecting rooms of the anatomy department and walked down the lines of glass-topped tables, staring at the partially dissected cadavers. The steady amputation of limbs and thorax, head and abdomen by teams of students, which would reduce each cadaver by term's end to a clutch of bones and a burial tag, exactly matched the erosion of the world around the high-rise. During the day, as Lang took his supervision and lunched with his colleagues in the refectory, he thought continually about the apartment building. A Pandora's box, whose thousand lids were one by one, inwardly opening. The dominant tenants of the high-rise, Lang reflected, those who had adapted most successfully to life there, were not the unruly airline pilots and film technicians from the lower floors, nor the bad-tempered and aggressive wives of the well-to-do tax specialists on the upper levels. Although at first sight these people appeared to provoke all the tension and hostility, those really responsible were the quiet and self-contained residents like the dental surgeon Steele and his wife. A new social type was being created by the apartment building. A cool, unemotional personality impervious to the psychological pressures of high-rise life, with minimal needs for privacy, who thrived like an advanced species of machine in the neutral atmosphere. This was the sort of resident who was content to do nothing but sit in his overpriced apartment watch television with the sound turned down, and wait for his neighbors to make a mistake. Perhaps the recent incidents represented a last attempt by Wilder and the airline pilots to rebel against this unfolding logic. Sadly, they had little chance of success, precisely because their opponents were people who were content with their lives in the high-rise, who felt no particular objection to an impersonal steel and concrete landscape 
No qualms about the invasion of their privacy by government agencies and data processing organizations. And if anything, welcomed these invisible intrusions, using them for their own purposes. These people were the first to master a new kind of late 20th century life. They thrived on the rapid turnover of acquaintances, the lack of involvement with others, and the total self-sufficiency of lives which needing nothing were never disappointed. Alternatively, their real needs might emerge later. The more arid and effectless life became in the high-rise, the greater the possibilities it offered. By its very efficiency, the high-rise took over the task of maintaining the social structure that supported them all. For the first time, it removed the need to repress every kind of antisocial behavior and left them free to explore any deviant or wayward impulses. It was precisely in these areas that the most important and most interesting aspects of their lives would take place. Secure within the shell of the high-rise, like passengers on board an automatically piloted airliner, they were free to behave in any way they wished, explore the darkest corners they could find. In many ways, the high-rise was a model of all that technology had done to make possible the expression of a truly free psychopathology. During the long afternoon, Lang slept in his office, waiting until he could leave the medical school and return home. When he left at last, he drove at speed past the half-completed television studios and then was held up for five minutes by a line of bulk cement carriers entering the construction site. It was here that Anthony Royal had been injured when his car had been crushed by a reversing grader. It often struck Lang as ironic, and in a way typical of Royal's ambiguous personality, that he should not only have become the project's first road casualty, but have helped to design the site of the accident. Annoyed by the delay, Lang fretted at the wheel. For some reason, he was convinced that important events were taking place in his absence. Sure enough, when he reached the apartment building at six o'clock, he learned that a number of fresh incidents had occurred. After changing, he joined Charlotte Melville for drinks. She had left her advertising agency before lunch, worried about her son. I didn't like him being on his own here. The babysitters are so unreliable. She poured whiskey into their glasses, gesturing with the decanter in an alarmed way as if about to toss it over the balcony rail. Robert, what is happening? Everything seems to be in a state of crisis. I'm frightened to step into an elevator by myself. Charlotte, things aren't that bad. Lang heard himself say, there's nothing to worry about. Did he really believe that life here was running smoothly? Lang listened to his own voice and noticed how convincing he sounded. The catalogue of disorder and provocation was a long one, even for a single afternoon. Two successive groups of children from the lower floors had been turned away from the recreation garden on the roof. This walled enclosure fitted with swings, roundabouts and play sculptures had been specifically intended by Anthony Royal for the amusement of the residents' children. The gates of the garden had now been padlocked and any children approaching the roof were ordered away. Meanwhile, the wives of several top-floor tenants claimed that they had been abused in the elevators. Other residents, as they left for their offices that morning, had found that their car tires had been slashed. Vandals had broken into the classrooms of the junior school on the 10th floor and torn down the children's posters. The lobbies of the five lower floors had been mysteriously fouled by dog excrement. The residents had promptly scooped this into an express elevator and delivered it back to the top floor. When Lang laughed at this, Charlotte drummed her fingers on his arm as if trying to wake him up. Robert, you ought to take all this seriously. I might too. You're in a trance. Lang looked down at her, suddenly aware that this intelligent and likable woman was failing to get the point. He placed an arm around her, unsurprised by the fierce way in which she embraced him. Ignoring her small son trying to open the kitchen door, she leaned against it and pulled Lang onto herself kneading his arms as if trying to convince herself that here at last was something whose shape she could influence. 
During the hour they waited for her son to fall asleep, her hands never left Lang. But even before they sat down together on her bed, Lang knew that, almost as an illustration of the paradoxical logic of the high-rise, their relationship would end rather than begin with this first sexual act. In a real sense, this would separate them from each other rather than bring them together. By the same paradox, the affection and concern he felt for her as they lay across her small bed seemed callous rather than tender, precisely because these emotions were unconnected with the realities of the world around them. The tokens that they should exchange, which would mark their real care for each other, were made of far more uncertain materials, the erotic and perverse. When she was asleep in the early evening light, Lang let himself out of the apartment and went in search of his new friends. Outside, in the corridors and elevator lobbies, scores of people were standing about. In no hurry to return to his apartment, Lang moved from one group to another, listening to the talk going on. These informal meetings were soon to have an almost official status, forums at which the residents could air their problems and prejudices. Most of their grievances, Lang noticed, were now directed at the other tenants rather than at the building. The failure of the elevators was blamed on people from the upper and lower floors, not on the architects or the inefficient services designed into the block. The garbage disposal chute Lang shared with the steels had jammed again. He tried to telephone the building manager, but the exhausted man had been inundated with complaints and requests for action of every kind. Several members of his staff had resigned, and the energies of the remainder were now devoted to keeping the elevators running and trying to restore power to the ninth floor. Lang mustered what tools he could find and went into the corridor to free the chute himself. Steel immediately came to his aid, bringing with him a complex, multi-bladed cutting device. While the two men worked away, trying to loosen a bundle of brocaded curtain that supported a column of trapped kitchen refuse, Steele amiably regaled Lang with a description of those tenants above and below them responsible for overloading the disposal system. Some of these people generate the most unusual garbage. Certainly the kind of thing we didn't expect to find here, he confided to Lang. Objects that could well be of interest to the vice squad. That beautician on the 33rd floor and the two so-called radiographers living together on the 22nd. Strange young women. To some extent, Lang found himself agreeing. However petty the complaints might sound, the 50-year-old owner of the hairdressing salon was endlessly redecorating her apartment on the 33rd floor and did stuff old rugs and even intact pieces of small furniture into the shoes. Steele stood back as the column of garbage sank below in a greasy avalanche. He held Lang's arm, steering him around a beer can lying on the corridor floor. Still, no doubt, we're all equally guilty. I hear that on the lower floors, people are leaving small parcels of garbage outside their apartment doors. Now, you'll come in for a drink? My wife is keen to see you again. Despite his memories of their quarrel, Lang had no qualms about accepting. As he expected, in the larger climate of confrontation, any unease between them was soon forgotten. Her hair immaculately coiffured, Mrs. Steele hovered about him with a delighted smile of a novice madam entertaining her first client. She even complimented Lang on his choice of music, which you could hear through the poorly insulated walls. Lang listened to her spirited description of the continuous breakdown of services within the building, the vandalizing of an elevator and the changing cubicles of the 10th floor swimming pool. She referred to the high-rise as if it were some kind of huge animate presence brooding over them and keeping a magisterial eye on the events taking place. There was something in this feeling. The elevators pumping up and down the long shafts resembled pistons in the chamber of a heart. The residents moving along the corridors with the cells in a network of arteries. The lights in their apartments, the neurons of a brain. Lang looked out across the darkness of the brilliantly lit decks of the nearby high-rise barely aware of the other guests who had arrived and were sitting in the chairs around him. The television newsreader, Paul Crossland, 
and a film critic named Eleanor Powell, a hard-drinking redhead whom Lang often found riding the elevators up and down in a fuddled attempt to find her way out of the building. Crossland had become the nominal leader of their clan, a local cluster of some 30 contiguous apartments on the 25th, 26th and 27th floors. Together they were planning a joint shopping expedition to the 10th floor supermarket the following day, like a band of villagers going on an outing to an unpoliced city. Beside him on the sofa, Eleanor Powell was watching Crossland in a glazed way, while the newsreader, in his florid announcer's style, outlined his proposals for the security of their apartments. Now and then she reached forward with one hand, as if trying to adjust Crossland's image, perhaps alter the color values of his fleshy cheeks, or turn down the volume of his voice. Isn't your apartment next to the elevator lobby? Lang asked her. Will you barricade yourself in? What on earth for? I leave the door wide open. And when Lang looked puzzled, she said, Isn't that part of the fun? You think that we're secretly enjoying all this? Don't you? I guess so, Doctor. Togetherness is beating up an empty elevator. For the first time since we were three years old, what we do makes absolutely no difference. When you think about it, it's really rather interesting. When she leaned against him, resting her head on his shoulder, Lang said, Something seems to be wrong with the air conditioning. There should be some fresh air on the balcony. Holding his arm, she picked up her bag. All right, lift me up. You're a shy lecher, Doctor. They had reached the French windows when there was an explosion of breaking glass from a balcony high above them. Fragments of glass flicked away, like knives through the night air. A large, ungainly object whirled past, no more than twenty feet from the balcony. Startled, Eleanor blundered into Lang. As they caught their balance, there was the sound of a harsh metallic collision from the ground below, almost as if a car had crashed. A short but unbroken silence followed. The first true quiet, Lang realized, that the building had known for days. Everyone crowded onto the balcony, Crossland and Steele grappling together as if each was trying to prevent the other from jumping over the ledge. Pushed along the railing, Lang saw his own empty balcony 15 feet away. In an absurd moment of panic, he wondered if he himself was the victim. All around, people were leaning on their railings, glasses in hand, staring down through the darkness. Far below, embedded in the crushed roof of a car in the front rank, was the body of a man in evening dress. Eleanor Powell, her face like pain, swayed from the rail and pushed her way past Crossland. Lang held tightly to the metal bar, shocked and excited at the same time. Almost every balcony on the huge face of the high-rise was now occupied, the residents gazing down as if from their boxes in an enormous outdoor opera house. No one approached the crushed car or the body embedded in its roof. Seeing the burst tuxedo and the small patent leather shoes, Lang thought that he recognized the dead man as the jeweler from the 40th floor. His pebble spectacles lay on the ground by the front wheel of the car, their intact lenses reflecting the brilliant lights of the apartment building. Chapter 4 Up During the week after the jeweler's death, events moved rapidly in a more disquieting direction. Richard Wilder, 24 floors below Dr. Lang, and for that reason far more exposed to the pressures generated within the building, was among the first to realize the full extent of the changes taking place. Wilder had been away on location for three days, shooting scenes for a new documentary on prison unrest. A strike by the inmates at a large provincial prison, widely covered by the newspapers and television, had given him a chance to inject some directly topical footage into the documentary. He returned home in the early afternoon. He had telephoned Helen each evening from his hotel and questioned her carefully about conditions in the high-rise, but she made no particular complaints. Nevertheless, her vague tone concerned him. When he had parked, Wilder kicked open the door and lifted his heavy body from behind the steering wheel. 
From his place on the perimeter of the parking lot, he carefully scanned the face of the huge building. At first glance, everything had settled down. The hundreds of cars were parked in orderly lines. The tiers of balconies rose through the clear sunlight, potted plants thriving behind the railings. For a moment, Wilder felt a pang of regret. Always a believer in direct action, he had enjoyed the skirmishes of the past week, roughing up his aggressive neighbors, particularly those residents from the top floors who had made life difficult for Helen and the two boys. The one discordant note was provided by the fractured picture window on the 40th floor, through which the unfortunate jeweler had made his exit. At either end of the floor were two penthouse apartments, the north corner occupied by Anthony Royal, the other by the jeweler and his wife. The broken pane had not been replaced, and the asterisk of cracked glass reminded Wilder of some kind of cryptic notation a transfer on the fuselage of a wartime aircraft marking a kill. Wilder unloaded his suitcase from the car and a holdall containing presents for Helen and his sons. On the rear seat was a lightweight cine camera with which he planned to shoot a few hundred feet of pilot footage for his documentary on the high-rise. The unexplained death of the jeweler had confirmed his long-standing conviction that an important documentary was waiting to be made about life in the high-rise, perhaps taking the jeweler's death as its starting point. It was a lucky coincidence that he lived in the same block as the dead man. The program would have all the impact of a personal biography. When the police investigation ended, the case would move on to the courts, and a huge question mark of notoriety would remain immovably in place over what he liked to term this high-priced tenement this hanging palace self-seeding its intrigues and destruction. Carrying the luggage in his strong arms, Wilder set off on the long walk back to the apartment building. His own apartment was directly above the proscenium of the main entrance. He waited for Helen to emerge onto the balcony and wave him in, one of the few compensations for having to leave his car at the edge of the parking lot. However, all but one of the blinds were still drawn. Quickening his step, Wilder approached the inner lines of parked cars. Abruptly, the illusion of normalcy began to give way. The cars in the front three ranks were spattered with debris, their once bright bodywork streaked and stained. The pathways around the building were littered with bottles, cans and broken glass, heaped about as if they were being continuously shed from the balconies. In the main entrance, Wilder found that two of the elevators were out of order. The lobby was deserted and silent, as if the entire high-rise had been abandoned. The manager's office was closed, and unsorted mail lay on the tiled floor by the glass doors. On the wall facing the line of elevators was scrawled a partly obliterated message, the first of a series of slogans and private signals that would one day cover every exposed surface in the building. Fittingly enough, these graffiti reflected the intelligence and education of the tenants. Despite their wit and imagination, these complex acrostics, palindromes and civilized obscenities aerosoled across the walls soon turned into a colorful but indecipherable mess, not unlike the cheap wallpapers found in laundrettes and travel agencies, which the residents of the high-rise most affected to despise. Wilder waited impatiently by the elevators, his temper mounting. Irritably, he punched the call buttons, but none of the cars showed any inclination to respond to him. All of them were permanently suspended between the 20th and 30th floors, between which they made short journeys. Picking up his bags, Wilder headed for the staircase. When he reached the second floor, he found the corridor in darkness and tripped over a plastic sack stuffed with garbage that blocked his front door. As he let himself into the hall, his first impression was that Helen had left the apartment and taken the two boys away with her. The blinds in the living room were lowered and the air conditioning had been switched off. Children's toys and clothes lay about on the floor. Wilder opened the door of the boys' bedroom. They lay asleep together, breathing unevenly in the stale air. The remains of a meal left from the previous day were on a tray between the beds. Wilder crossed the living room to his own bedroom. 
one blind had been raised, and the daylight crossed the white walls in an undisturbed bar. Uncannily, it reminded Wilder of a cell he had filmed two days earlier in the psychiatric wing of the prison. Helen lay fully dressed on the neatly made bed. He assumed that she was asleep. But as he crossed the room, trying to quieten his heavy tread, her eyes watched him without expression. Richard, it's all right. She spoke calmly. I've been awake since you rang yesterday, in fact. Was it a good trip? She started to get up while Wilder held her head on the pillow. The boys, what's going on here? Nothing. She touched his hand, giving him a reassuring smile. They wanted to sleep, so I let them. There isn't anything else for them to do. It's too noisy at night. Sorry the place is in such a mess. Never mind the place. Why aren't the boys at school? It's closed. They haven't been since you left. Why not? Irritated by his wife's passivity, Wilder began to knead his heavy hands together. Helen, you can't lie here like this all day. What about the roof garden? Or the swimming pool? Well, I think they only exist in my head. It's too difficult. She pointed to the cine camera on the floor between Wilder's feet. What's that for? I may shoot some footage for the high-rise project. Oh, another prison documentary. Helen smiled at Wilder without any show of humor. I can tell you where to start. Wilder took her face in his hands. He felt the slim bones, as if making sure that this tenuous armature still existed. Somehow he would raise her spirits. Seven years earlier, when he had met her while working for one of the commercial television companies, she had been a bright and self-confident producer's assistant, more than a match for Wilder with her quick tongue. The time not spent in bed together, they had spent arguing. Now, after the combination of the two boys and a year in the high-rise, she was withdrawing into herself, obsessively wrapped up with the children's most elementary activities. Even her reviewing of children's books was part of the same retreat. Wilder brought her a glass of the sweet liqueur she liked. Trying to decide what best to do, he rubbed the muscles of his chest. What had at first pleased Wilder, but now disturbed him most of all, was that she no longer noticed his affairs with the bachelor women in the high-rise. Even if she saw her husband talking to one of them, Helen would approach, tugging the boys after her, as if no longer concerned with what his wayward sex might be up to. Several of these young women, like the television actress whose Afghan he had drowned in the pool during the blackout, or the continuity girl on the floor above them, had become Helen's friends. The latter, a serious-minded girl who read Byron in the supermarket queues, worked for an independent producer of pornographic films, or so Helen informed him matter-of-factly. She has to note the precise sexual position between takes. An interesting job. I wonder what the qualifications are, or the life expectancy. Wilder had been shocked by this. Vaguely prudish, he had never been able to question the continuity girl. When they made love in her third-floor apartment, he had the uneasy feeling that she was automatically memorizing every embrace and copulatory posture in case he was suddenly called away and might take off again from exactly the same point with another boyfriend. The limitless professional expertise of the high-rise had its unsettling aspects. Wilder watched his wife sip the liqueur. He stroked her small thighs in an attempt to revive her. Helen, come on. You look as if you're waiting for the end. We'll straighten everything and take the boys up to the swimming pool. Helen shook her head. There's too much hostility. It's always been there, but now it stands out. People pick on the children, without realizing it, I sometimes think. She sat on the edge of the bed while Wilder changed, staring through the window at the line of high-rises receding across the sky. In fact, it's not really the other residents. It's the building. I know. But once the police investigation is over, you'll find that everything will quieten down. For one thing, there'll be an overpowering sense of guilt. What are they investigating? The death, of course of our high-diving jeweler. Picking up the cine camera, 
Wilder took off the lens shroud. Have you spoken to the police? I don't know. I've been avoiding everyone. Brightening herself by an effort of will, she went over to Wilder. Richard, have you ever thought of selling the apartment? We could actually leave. I'm serious. Helen! Nonplussed for a moment, Wilder stared down at the small, determined figure of his wife. He took off his trousers, as if exposing his thick chest and heavy loins in some way reasserted his authority over himself. That's equivalent to being driven out. Anyway, we'd never get back what we paid for the apartment. He waited until Helen lowered her head and turned away to the bed. At her insistence, six months earlier, they had already moved from their first apartment on the ground floor. At the time, they had seriously discussed leaving the high-rise altogether. Wilder had persuaded Helen to stay on, for reasons he had never fully understood. Above all, he would not admit his failure to deal on equal terms with his professional neighbors, to outstare these self-satisfied cost accountants and marketing managers. As his sons wandered sleepily into the room, Helen remarked, perhaps we could move to a higher floor. Shaving his chin, Wilder pondered this last comment of his wife's. The frail plea had a particular significance, as if some long-standing ambition had been tapped inside his head. Helen, of course, was thinking in terms of social advancement, of moving, in effect, to a better neighborhood, away from this lower-class suburb to those smarter residential districts somewhere between the 15th and 30th floors, where the corridors were clean and the children would not have to play in the streets, where tolerance and sophistication civilized the air. Wilder had something different in mind. As he listened to Helen's quiet voice, murmuring to her two sons as if speaking to them from inside a deep dream. He examined himself in the mirror, like a prize fighter reassuring himself before a match. He patted the muscles of his stomach and shoulders. In the mental as well as the physical sense, he was almost certainly the strongest man in the building, and Helen's lack of spirit annoyed him. He realized that he had no real means of coping with this kind of passivity, his response to it was still framed by his upbringing, by an over-emotional mother who had loved him devotedly through the longest possible childhood she could arrange, and thereby given Wilder what he always thought of as his unshakable self-confidence. She had separated from Wilder's father, a shadowy figure of disreputable background, when he was a small child. The second marriage, to a pleasant but passive accountant and chess enthusiast, had been wholly dominated by the relationship between the mother and her bullock-like son. When he met his future wife, Wilder naively believed that he wanted to pass on these advantages to Helen, to look after her and provide an endless flow of security and good humor. Of course, as he realized now, no one ever changed, and for all his abundant self-confidence, he needed to be looked after just as much as ever. Once or twice, in unguarded moments during the early days of their marriage, he had attempted to play the childish games he had enjoyed with his mother, but Helen had not been able to bring herself to treat Wilder like her son. For her part, Wilder guessed, love and care were the last things she really wanted. Perhaps the breakdown of life in the high-rise would fulfill her unconscious expectations more than she realized. As he massaged his cheeks, Wilder listened to the air humming erratically in the air-conditioning flues behind the shower store, pumped all the way down from the roof of the building 39 floors above. He watched the water emerge from the tap. This too had made its long descent from the reservoirs on the roof, running down the immense internal wells riven through the apartment block, like icy streams percolating through a subterranean cavern. His determination to make the documentary had a strong personal bias. Part of a calculated attempt to come to terms with the building, meet the physical challenge it presented to him, and then dominate it. For some time now, he had known that he was developing a powerful phobia about the high-rise. He was constantly aware of the immense weight of concrete stacked above him, and the sense that his body was the focus of the lines of force running through the building almost as if Anthony Royal had deliberately designed his body to be held within their grip. At night, 
as he lay beside his sleeping wife. He would often wake from an uneasy dream into the suffocating bedroom, conscious of each of the 999 other apartments pressing on him through the walls and ceiling, forcing the air from his chest. He was sure that he had drowned the Afghan, not because he disliked the dog particularly or wanted to upset its owner, but to revenge himself on the upper stories of the building. He had seized the dog in the darkness when it blundered into the pool, giving into a cruel but powerful impulse. He had pulled it below the water. As he held its galvanized and thrashing body under the surface, in a strange way, he had been struggling with the building itself. Thinking of those distant heights, Wilder took his shower, turning the cold tap on full and letting the icy jet roar across his chest and loins. Where Helen had begun to falter, he felt more determined. Like a climber who has at long last reached the foot of the mountain, he has prepared all his life to scale. Chapter 5 The Vertical City Whatever plans he might devise for his ascent, whatever route to the summit, it was soon obvious to Wilder that at its present rate of erosion, little of the high-rise would be left. Almost everything possible was going wrong with the services. He helped Helen straighten the apartment and tried to jerk some sense of vitality into his dormant family by drawing blinds and moving noisily around the rooms. Wilder found it difficult to revive them. At five-minute intervals, the air conditioning ceased to work, and in the warm summer weather, the apartment was heavy with stagnant air. Wilder noticed that he had already begun to accept the fetid atmosphere as normal. Helen told him that she had heard a rumor from the other residents that dog excrement had been deliberately dropped into the air conditioning flues by the upper-level tenants. Strong winds circulated around the open plazas of the development project, buffeting the lower floors of the apartment building as they swirled through the concrete legs. Wilder opened the windows, hoping for some fresh air, but the apartment soon filled with dust and powdered cement. The ashy film already covered the tops of cupboards and bookshelves. By the late afternoon, the residents began to return from their offices. The elevators were noisy and overcrowded. Three of them were now out of order, and the remainder were jammed with impatient tenants trying to reach their floors. From the open door of his apartment, Wilder watched his neighbors jostle each other aggressively like bad-tempered miners emerging from their pit cages. They strode past him. Briefcases and handbags wielded like the instruments of an over-nervous body armor. On an impulse, Wilder decided to test his rights of free passage around the building and his access to all its services, particularly the swimming pool on the 35th floor and the children's sculpture garden on the observation roof. Taking his camera, he set out for the roof with the older of his two sons. However, he soon found that the high-speed elevators were either out of order, under repair, or kept permanently at the top floors with their doors jammed open. The only access to them was through the private outside entrance to which Wilder did not have a key. All the more determined now to reach the roof, Wilder waited for one of the intermediate elevators which would carry them as far as the 35th floor. When it arrived, he pushed his way into the crowded cabin, surrounded by passengers who stared down at Wilder's six-year-old son with unfeigned hostility. At the 23rd floor, the elevator refused to move any further. The passengers scrummaged their way out, drumming their briefcases against the closed doors of the elevators in what seemed to be a ritual display of temper. Wilder set off up the stairs, carrying his small son in his arms. With his powerful physique, he was strong enough to climb all the way to the roof. Two floors above, however, the staircase was blocked by a group of local residents, among them the offensive young orthodontic surgeon who was Robert Lang's neighbor, trying to free a garbage disposal chute. Suspicious that they might be tampering with the air conditioning ducts, Wilder pushed through them but was briskly shouldered aside by a man he recognized as a newsreader for a rival television company. The staircase is closed, Wilder. Can't you get the point? What? Wilder was amazed by this effrontery. How do you mean?
closed. What are you doing up here anyway? The two men squared up to each other. Amused by the announcer's aggressive manner, Wilder lifted the camera as if to film his florid face. When Crossland waved him away imperiously, Wilder was tempted to knock the man down, not wishing to upset his son, who was nervous enough already in this harsh atmosphere. He retreated to the elevator and returned to the lower floors. The confrontation, however minor, had unsettled Wilder. Ignoring Helen, he prowled around the apartment, swinging the camera to and fro. He felt excited, in a confused way, partly by his plans for the documentary, but also by the growing atmosphere of collision and hostility. From the balcony, he watched the huge Alcatraz blocks of the nearby high-rises. The material about these buildings, visual and sociological, was almost limitless. They would film the exteriors from a helicopter, and from the nearest block 400 yards away, in his mind's eye, he could already see a long 60-second zoom, slowly moving from the whole building in frame to a close-up of a single apartment one cell in this nightmare termitary. The first half of the program would examine life in the high-rise in terms of its design errors and minor irritations, while the remainder would then look at the psychology of living in a community of 2,000 people boxed up into the sky. Everything from the incidents of crime, divorce and sexual misdemeanors, to the turnover of residents, their health, the frequency of insomnia and other psychosomatic disorders. All the evidence accumulated over several decades cast a critical light on the high-rise as a viable social structure. But cost-effectiveness in the area of public housing and high profitability in the private sector kept pushing these vertical townships into the sky against the real needs of their occupants. The psychology of high-rise life had been exposed with damning results. The absence of humor, for example, had always struck Wilder as the single most significant feature. All research by investigators confirmed that the tenants of high-rises made no jokes about them. In a strict sense, life there was eventless. On the basis of his own experience, Wilder was convinced that the high-rise apartment was an insufficiently flexible shell to provide the kind of home which encouraged activities, as distinct from somewhere to eat and sleep. Living in high-rises required a special type of behavior, one that was acquiescent, restrained, even perhaps slightly mad. A psychotic would have a bore here, wildly reflected. Vandalism had plagued these slab and tower blocks since their inception. Every torn-out piece of telephone equipment, every handle wrenched off a fire safety door, every kicked-in electricity meter, represented a stand against decerebration. What angered Wilder most of all about life in the apartment building was the way in which an apparently homogenous collection of high-income professional people had split into three distinct and hostile camps. The old social subdivisions, based on power, capital, and self-interest, had reasserted themselves here as anywhere else. In effect, the high-rise had already divided itself into the three classical social groups, its lower, middle, and upper classes. The 10th floor shopping mall formed a clear boundary between the lower nine floors, with their proletariat of film technicians, air hostesses, and the like, and the middle section of the high-rise, which extended from the 10th floor to the swimming pool and restaurant deck on the 35th. This central two-thirds of the apartment building formed its middle class, made up of self-centered but basically docile members of the professions. The doctors and lawyers, accountants and tax specialists, who worked not for themselves, but for medical institutes and large corporations. Puritan and self-disciplined, they had all the cohesion of those eager to settle the second best. Above them, on the top five floors of the high-rise was its upper class, the discreet oligarchy of minor tycoons and entrepreneurs, television actresses and careerist academics, 
with their high-speed elevators and superior services, their carpeted staircases. It was they who set the pace of the building. It was their complaints which were acted upon first, and it was they who subtly dominated life within the high-rise, deciding when the children could use the swimming pools and roof garden, the menus in the restaurant, and the high charges that kept out almost everyone but themselves. Above all, it was their subtle patronage that kept the middle ranks in line, this constantly dangling carrot of friendship and approval. The thought of these exclusive residents, as high above him in their top floor redoubts as any feudal lord above a serf, filled Wilder with a growing sense of impatience and resentment. However, it was difficult to organize any kind of counterattack. It would be easy enough to play the populist leader and become the spokesman of his neighbors on the lower floors, but they lacked any cohesion or self-interest. They would be no match for the well-disciplined professional people in the central section of the apartment building. There was a latent easygoingness about them, an inclination to tolerate an undue amount of interference before simply packing up and moving on. In short, their territorial instinct, in its psychological and social senses, had atrophied to the point where they were ripe for exploitation. To rally his neighbors, Wilder needed something that would give them a strong feeling of identity. The television documentary would do this perfectly, and in terms, moreover, which they could understand. The documentary would dramatize all their resentments and expose the way in which the services and facilities were being abused by the upper-level tenants. It might even be necessary to ferment trouble surreptitiously, to exaggerate the tensions present in the high-rise. However, as Wilder soon discovered, the shape of his documentary was already being determined. Fired by his resolve to fight back, Wilder decided to give his wife and children a break from his ceaseless pacing. The air conditioning now worked for only five minutes in each hour, and by dusk the apartment was stuffy and humid. The noise of overloud conversations and record players at full volume reverberated off the balconies above them. Helen Wilder moved along the already closed windows, her small hands pressed numbly against the latches, as if trying to push away the night. Too preoccupied to help her, Wilder set off with a towel and swimming trunks to the pool on the tenth floor. A few telephone calls to his neighbors on the lower floors had confirmed that they were keen to take part in the documentary, but Wilder needed participants from the upper and middle levels of the high-rise. The out-of-order elevators had still not been repaired, and Wilder took to the stairs. Sections of the staircase had already been turned into a garbage well by the residents above. Broken glass littered the steps cutting his shoes. The shopping mall was crowded with people, milling about and talking at the tops of their voices as if waiting for a political rally to start. Usually deserted at this hour, the swimming pool was packed with residents playing the fool in the water, pushing each other off the tiled verge and splashing the changing stalls. The attendant had gone, abandoning his booth, and already the pool was beginning to look neglected discarded towels lying in the gutters. In the showers, Wilder recognized Robert Lang. Although the doctor turned his back on him, Wilder ignored the rebuff and stood under the next spray. The two men spoke briefly, but in non-committal terms. Wilder had always found Lang good company, with his keen eye for any passing young woman. But today he was being standoffish. Like everyone else, he had been affected by the atmosphere of confrontation. Have the police arrived yet? Wilder asked above the noise as they walked to the diving boards. No. Are you expecting them? Lang seemed genuinely surprised. They'll want to question the witnesses. What happened, in fact? Was he pushed? <laughs> His wife looks hefty enough. but Perhaps she wanted a quick divorce. Lang smiled patiently, as if this remark in doubtful taste was all he expected of Wilder. His sharp eyes were deliberately vague and remained closed to any probing. I know nothing about the accident, Wilder. It may have been suicide, I suppose. Are you personally concerned? Aren't you, Lang? It's odd. 
that a man can fall from a window 40 floors above the ground without there being any kind of investigation. Lang stepped onto the diving board. His body was unusually well muscled, Wilder noticed, almost as if he had been taking a good deal of recent exercise, doing dozens of push-ups. Lang waited for a clear space in the crowded water. I think we can rely on his neighbors to look after everything. Wilder lifted his voice. I've begun planning the television documentary. His death would make a good starting point. Lang looked down at Wilder with sudden interest. He shook his head firmly. I'd forget all about it if I were you, Wilder. He stepped to the end of the board, sprang twice, and made a hard, neat dive into the yellowing water. Swimming by himself at the shallow end of the pool, Wilder watched Lang and his party of friends playing about in the deep end. Previously, Wilder would have joined them, particularly as there were two attractive women in the group. Charlotte Melville, whom he had not seen for several days about their projected parents' association, and the tyro-alcoholic Eleanor Powell. Wilder had obviously been excluded. Lang's pointed use of his surname marked the distance between them. Like his vagueness about the dead jeweler, and his sidestepping of the television documentary, in which he had once been keenly interested. If anything, Lang's approval had inspired Wilder to develop the idea into a provisional treatment. Presumably Lang, with his excessive need for privacy, had no wish to see the collective folly of the residents, their childish squabbles and jealousies, exposed on the nation's television screens. Or was there some other impulse at work? A need to shut away, most of all from oneself, any realization of what was actually happening in the high-rise, so that events there could follow their own logic and get even more out of hand. For all his own professed enthusiasm about the documentary, Wilder knew that he had never discussed it with anyone who did not live inside the apartment building. Even Helen, talking to her mother that afternoon on the telephone, had said vaguely, Everything's fine. There's some slight trouble with the air conditioning, but it's being fixed. This growing defiance of reality no longer surprised Wilder. The decision that the chaos within the high-rise was a matter for the residents themselves explained the mystery of the dead jeweler. At least a thousand people must have seen the body. Wilder remembered stepping onto the balcony and being startled not by the sight of the dead man, but by the huge audience reaching up to the sky. Had anyone notified the police? He had taken it for granted, but now he was less sure. Wilder found it hard to believe that this sophisticated and self-important man would commit suicide. Yet no one was in the least concerned, accepting the possibility of murder in the same way that the swimmers in the pool accepted the wine bottles and beer cans rolling around the tiled floor under their feet. During the evening, Wilder's speculations took second place to the struggle to preserve his sanity. After settling the two boys in their bedroom, he and his wife sat down to dinner, only to find that a sudden electricity failure had plunged them into darkness. Sitting opposite each other at the dining room table, they listened to the continuous noise from the corridor, their neighbors arguing in the elevator lobby, transistors blaring through open apartment doors. Helen began to laugh, relaxing for the first time in weeks. <laughs> Dick, it's a huge children's party that's got out of hand. She reached out to calm Wilder. In the faint light that crossed the room from the nearby high-rise, her slim face had an almost unreal calm, as if she no longer felt herself to be part of the events taking place around her. Restraining his temper, Wilder hunched heavily in the darkness over the table. He was tempted more than once to plunge his fist into the soup. When the lights returned, he tried to telephone the building manager, but the switchboard was jammed with calls. At last, a recorded voice told him that the manager had fallen ill, and that all complaints would be played through and noted for future attention. My God, he's actually going to listen to all these tapes? There must be miles 